Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, we have a little bit more from Kathy Shingler. As you might recall from episode 80, she's the interpretation officer from Stokes Museum Service, and she's been working with the Horde since it was pretty much found, and she's a fantastic resource and a font of knowledge. You'll probably want to listen to this one a couple times because she has a lot to say, and it's all really interesting stuff. So here we go. So one of the things I noticed while I was looking around the hoard that we have on display here at Stoke-on-Trent is that it's primarily offensive in nature. There aren't a lot of body armor and there aren't a lot of helmet pieces, but there is that one cheek piece that we have. There is, and there were probably two cheek pieces originally. We have fittings for two cheek pieces and just a little strip that may have come off the companion cheek piece. Um, It's not a cheek piece every day. Sometimes people decide it can't possibly be a cheek piece because it's too small. And it's true that if you just put it on the edge of an ordinary cap helmet, it would be way, way above your cheek. The the other problem is that it's gold. And gold is a stupid thing to make armour out of because it's soft. And if somebody hits it, it'll, it'll just crumple and not defend you at all. In answer to those criticisms, I would say that only pieces of perhaps four or five helmets have ever been found in England that date back to this period, and they're all completely different. So it's not impossible that this cheek piece comes from a helmet of a design that we don't know about. The other thing that I'd say about the helmets is, is they're not exactly ceremonial, but they're not terribly practical for fighting. If you think how heavy a steel helmet is, it's going to be even worse with great big gold cheek pieces and we have fragments of silver panels that went all over to gold nose guard and a gold crest holder. And assuming these are all of the same helmet, it's going to be incredibly heavy once you've got it on. You can hardly stand, let alone fight. And, and I think this is because it was not your job to fight if you were the commander or the king or the lord of an army. It was your job to stand on a hill and glitter and inspire your men and put the fear of God into the enemy because um, your soldiers, they live with you in your meat hall and they know that you snore and your feet smell and you have many personal defects but once you've got the helmet on which is like a mask that covers your face they can believe that you are Thor or Woden and you've come down to lead them to victory it's almost a disguise, it's a sign that you're possessed by the God and the enemy is going to believe this just as much and, and, and be extremely frightened and perhaps not fight terribly well. Presumably their commander is, is also standing on the opposite hill, glittering, so it's who's shiniest, really, who's, uh, who's going to win. It was essentially an early form of a crown. Yes, I think so. Um, you wouldn't necessarily wear it sort of sitting about in the meat hall at home, um, partly because it's so heavy and partly because you couldn't see very well because it's like a mask and it's got this great big nose guard and it's probably not very comfortable. But yes, I believe that um, the Aztec religions have similar things where you'll put on a, a mask made of precious things and you assume the person of the god. So why do you think there are so few defensive pieces in the horde? Why do you think it's so offensive because in nature? Armour was not very widespread. One of the things you can tell by looking at the the little panels that fitted on the helmet is what a warrior might have looked like. If you think about it, we've got very, very little illustrative material for that time. You've got Rome statues, and then you've got the occasional illuminated manuscript, which is mainly pictures of sort of prophets or gospel makers, what have you. And then you've got the bio-tapestry in 1066. You've got hardly anything else in between. So the, the helmets are important, not just because of what they tell us about helmets, 
but because what they tell us about warfare in general. And you can see on one of the panels, you can see their little shields, and you see their little legs dangling down with their little feet, which seem to be bare. And you can see that one of them is wearing chain mail, and two of them are wearing sort of quilted armour. And the, the quilted armour might have been leather, it might have been waxed cloth, something like that, but it's not going to last. And the chain mail is going to be iron, that's not going to last either. And also the hoard doesn't have very much ferrous material in it at all, you know, that's not their hoarding. So the armour won't have survived... Because it, and, and it won't have been probably collected into the hoard in the first place because it's not precious metals. Some of the mounts may have been fixed to shields, but the shields themselves would have been wood, perhaps older or linden, um, maybe covered with leather. We have got one shield boss that's it's not part of the hoard, but it came out of a grave, and that's iron. But as a rule, you just want the precious things, so you're going to lever those off the shield and take them away and leave the shields, or perhaps recycle them amongst your men, but you're not going to put them in your hoard. Now, we spoke a little bit about the blades and how there might be a second hoard where you'd put the blades, because making a blade would be a very difficult process. Right? It was a difficult process, and, and also the blade of the sword was not just a, a pointy thing for killing people with. They've got a much deeper resonance than that. They're heirlooms, they're handed down for your, your father or your, your grandfather or even your great-grandfather, which I think explains why some of the pommel caps in the hoard are nearly 200 years earlier than when we think the hoard was buried. It's, it's not because they were buried then. They were still being used on somebody's sword that was an heirloom. But the the blades themselves were were pattern-welded. You'd have um, a bundle of iron and steel rods, and you'd twist them together and hammer them out, and twist them together and hammer them out, and do this over and over again, until you end up with a a really strong, fine blade that takes a very keen edge and has this beautiful... It's quite sort of light to wield, and it's got this beautiful pattern like watered silk going down the middle of it. Their swords have names. They have genealogies. They, they've, they've almost got their own characters. So I, I think it's unlikely that they would have take, levered the, the sword fittings off and just thrown the blades away. I'm, I'm sure they recycled them in some way, and um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they had a separate stash of blades. And these would have been weapons just for the high-status warriors, the, the warrior bands, right? Because the fear would, would just be fighting with spears and the like, right? Every, every man had a spear. It was, it was a, a freeborn Saxon's right to carry a spear, so you could tell he wasn't a woman or a slave or something else that you did want him to be. Um, so, so everybody had a spear. Most people had a seax, which is like a single-bladed knife, like a long, slim machete. And that's where the Saxons get their name from, right? Is I believe from so. The it's, it's the people of the seax. Yeah. Even women and children are found buried with sexism. But the idea was that um, in a battle is you'd start off with the spears and you might hurl them or you might just thrust them. And you might be lucky and hit somebody in the throat in an unguarded bit. What you're trying to do is, is stick them in the shields so that the shields are weighed down and then you can finish them off with the seax or your sword if you happen to be a very elite person. One of the strangest things in the, in the hoard, though, is a beautiful set of hilt fittings which uh, they're about, it's about eight and a half ounces of gold. It's really high-quality gold, and they're decorated with sinuous animal shapes in garnet. And you know, looking at it, you think that's got to have been made for a king, but it fitted a seax, and you can tell that because the slot for the blade is triangular rather than pointed at both ends. So a seax obviously did have high status usage as well, but you noblemen were generally expected to carry a sword, yeah. And based on the fittings that we have, we're seeing evidence of both double-bladed full swords and seaxes yes. in this horror. Yeah. And, and the pommel caps could have gone on either. Those are little cocked hat-shaped pieces. Um, 
there's 90 odd in the hoard, which is an unprecedented number to find together. I think in the, the Sutton Hoo find, the burial, there was only one decorated pommel cap found. And they tend to be decorated with two main ways. There are different things as well. They're either garnet cloisonné, where the, the goldsmith has made a sort of network of cells out of gold strips, and he backs each cell with a piece of cross-hatched foil that has been stamped on a die. And then he cuts a slice of garnet to fit exactly. And some of the, the shapes are really quite complicated, and garnet is not an easy stone to cut. They tend to tessellate in very beautiful and exotic patterns. But the garnets fit exactly, and the, the, when the light passes through the garnet, it glitters off the foil behind it and makes it much shinier than it would have been normally. And a couple of years ago, we sent some of the garnets to, to Paris, to the Louvre, to be analysed because um, they can tell where they're from. And we, we didn't think they were British, because you do get garnets in, in Britain, but, but they tend not to be this deep wine colour. And we thought they were probably Czech. And some of them were, but some of them turned out to be from southern India and perhaps even Sri Lanka, and that, that was a bit of a facer, really. Those are the big wine gum ones that look as if you sucked them, they taste of raspberries. <laughs> <laughs> and the other way in which the pommel caps are, are decorated is filigree. I haven't yet met anybody who can produce this delicacy of filigree these days. They would take a, a really thin, thin gold wire, thinner than a hair, and you'd twist that, and you'd hammer out the twists so that they look like little beads, and then you'd twirl the twisted wire into patterns, and then you soldered it onto the gold background. And you could hardly see some of it with the naked eye, and you have to think, these people haven't even got artificial light, let alone magnification or precision tools or anything like that. We, we, we've just no idea at all how they, how they managed to do it. So, um, some people have suggested that they might have used children from a very early age who showed an aptitude for this sort of thing. And by the time they're grown up, they're pretty much blind to all intents and purposes. But um, they can see to, to do this, this very delicate work very, very closely, uh, very myop- myopic. Now, Sutton Hoo has been widely regarded as a potential ship burial for King Raidwald. And a lot of that was based upon how magnificent his pommel cap was. Now, given that, when we're looking at these pommel caps, what, what do these pommel caps tell us? And what does that tell us about Sutton Hoo as well? Well, it suggests to me that there were a lot more people of the level of the Sutton Hoo burial around than we've hitherto supposed. And although he was obviously a very important chap and possibly even a king, he obviously wasn't the only one. So we, when we were downstairs, we were looking at some of these pommel caps, and unfortunately, many of my listeners aren't going to be looking at images. Can you describe some of these uh, pommel caps so that way the listeners can have a picture in their mind's eye of what they look like? They're mostly triangular, quite a sort of um, sin- sinuous sort of shape. Some of, some of them are, are, are semicircular. My favourite one is one that's cast by the lost wax process, which most of them aren't. Most of them are either cloisonné or filigree. And it's covered in animals. It's got wolves' jaws at either end. At the apex, there's a boar's head wearing a helmet. It's got fighting horses engraved on the front and filled in with niello. And it's got birdy things and snaky things writhing down it. And it's so unlike the others. It, it's, the, the Saxons never did anything by accident. All, all their decorations, even the filigree that just looks like squiggles, if you look at it closely, it's quite often got little heads and tails. It, it's, it, it's all symbolism and it's all significant. For, the, for, the, for Anglo-Saxon serpents, for example, were a symbol of, of wisdom. They weren't sort of sinister or creepy. And uh, boars are a symbol of protection and eagles are a symbol of sovereignty and wolves of ferocity. But um, that particular pommel cap with the boar's head at the top wearing a helmet, it could be a sort of a pun because the Anglo-Saxons are also very keen on ambiguity and riddles, uh, riddling competitions are some of their favourite pastimes. 
It might be. They quite often decorated their helmets with boars' heads or or something symbolising a boar. And it might be a pun, instead of you've got a helmet with a boar's head on it, you've got a boar's head with a helmet on it. So it it might be as simple as that. But it might also be something deeper. And remember, for these people, magic is an everyday thing, really. And they believed in shape-shifting. And it could be somebody, you know, a warrior in, the, in mid-transformation, he, he's transforming from warrior to boar. Or it might even be that the, the pommel itself had um, shamanistic powers, and if you had this sword in your possession, you, you perhaps achieved the power of being able to shapeshift. It's not the only magic thing we've got in the, in the horde. Um, we, we have a magic bead, or a thaumaturgical amulet, to give it its official title. It's just a little ring of plain white stone, And when we first saw it, we couldn't think what on earth it could be because everything else seemed to have been selected so carefully and it's all precious or important or significant in some way. And this this ordinary little stone bead, what could it possibly be? And then um, our experts tell us that it's a a magic bead and it might be that you carry it into battle and if your chum was stabbed, you you would rub the magic bead on his wound and it would magically heal up. And I'm, I'm sure they noticed that from time to time this didn't happen. But on the other hand, it could have been a lot worse without the magic bead. How did the experts determine that with the bead? They found a shadow on it that fitted onto a sort of a stud with a, a shank behind it, like a little button, like a boot button, really. And that's very highly decorated. That's a golden garnet cloisonné. And it obviously fitted onto something. Um, we think possibly a sword scabbard. We don't really know. So it's something that you would carry into battle with you, and we can't think of another purpose to it really so we may be imagining a step too far here but at the moment there's nobody to to say us no now on these pommels they've clearly been used they have every single pommel has got um, a very shiny apex and if you think about anglo-saxon warriors we tend to imagine these great gruff brutish sort of chaps but they're not going to be like that they're perhaps 13 14 15 you're going to be very young when you start fighting in your in your in your father's army and a, a lot of the literature of the time talks about kings taking their sons into battle and the, the sons are the first to be cut down they are, they're obviously very very young and you can imagine the soldiers waiting for the battle to begin they're lurking in the woods or on the seafront as, as the seashore or, or on a hill and they're waiting for the battle to begin, and there's always a lot of hanging about in war, and you're going to be nervous, and you're just going to be rubbing your thumb back and forwards over the, over the top of your pommel, and it's going to wear it smooth. And even when you're hanging around in court, if you've got your, your, your sword at your side, there's going to be boring bits, and you'll stand with your hand on your pommel, and you'll shift about. So they, they have been used, yes. And some of these pommels and some of these finds span a number of centuries, right? This isn't just all contemporary for, what is it, 675 when we think that it was buried. But that's, what, that's what we say, but that is a guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's possible that that pommel could have been rubbed by... Generations, yes. I mean, you, you, your, sword, your sword would probably be an heirloom, and that's another responsibility. You've got your grandfather's sword at your side. Everybody know they don't know who you are, but they know about the sword, and that's an extra responsibility that you've got to take. The earliest sword pommel is around about 500, and it's silver, and it's probably Scandinavian which you, know, you might expect as these people have come over from not a million miles from Denmark. 
but yes, the, these problems have all seen use, and let's face it, if things had gone well for the people in the field, they probably wouldn't be in the hoard. Now, another one of the objects that we looked at when we were walking around the hoard was the pyramid. Can you describe the pyramid for us and then explain how it might have been used? There's several pyramids. They, they tend to come in pairs, and the ones we've got are mostly um, gold and garnet cloisonné, although there, there is one beautiful little pair with chips of opaque blue glass in, which might be recycled Roman tesserae. And there's another pair which has got little bits of glass milfiori set in the top. And we don't really know what they are, but our best guess is that they were a Saxon equivalent of Viking peace bands. The sword pyramids are hollow with a bar across the bottom. And what we think they were used for, they'd have gone on either end of a piece of leather or tape. And you'd have tied your sword or your sayaks into, into its scabbard because they tended to wear their swords horizontally hung at their belt. So if you jump about a lot or you're riding a horse or something like that, your sword's quite likely to fall out if it's not tied in. And also, if you're having a heavy session in the mead hall and your chum staggers up to you and says, Cuthbert, you're a sissy! Your, your instinct is to draw your sword and smite his head off. And this would be quite a shame because you're friends, really, and all for whoever is a you know, good chap to have on your side in a battle. And if you have to fumble about untying your sword, by the time you've got it out, Ulfur's staggered off and is insulting somebody else and he's forgotten what he said anyway, so you can put your sword back in its scabbard and, and, and carry on with your mead. So it's a sort of an early safety trigger for a sword or a sayax, really. And to give a sense of scale, these things are, I'd say, roughly the size of, what, a gumdrop? About a gumdrop? Yes, they're yeah. tiny. Everything is minute. Um, the seahorse that is quite famous is about just over an inch long, and each of the little whirls on it of, of filigree is the, the size of a grain of rice. So it's all really, really tiny. The first time I ever saw it, it was all laid out on a table at the British Museum in its, in its Tupperware boxes with its raffle ticket labelling. And I nearly died of disappointment. I don't know what I was expecting, but um, it wasn't like lots of little tiny bits of dirty metal all covered in mud. And then you look at it, and you think, good heavens, I don't know the Saxons could do that. And you realise that the workmanship is in the smallness and the delicacy. And when I'm showing people round, um, sometimes I do it at night, and I turn the lights off, and I give them torches, so that they're not just looking at a case full of objects. They have to look at the pieces one at a time with the torch. And it glitters much more satisfyingly with the torch. And you can actually see the workmanship in much more detail. You can concentrate on it. And the first thing you see is not the smallness, because I, th- I think people are expecting... You know, they've seen great big pictures and they think the things are going to be that size. Yeah, I've had exactly the same experience, actually. <laughs> I walked in and thought, that is incredibly small. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the objects that I spoke about briefly with Deb were the eyes, and these were found actually on the surface. They, there was no digging involved. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about... The eyes? Well, at first we had absolutely no idea at all what they could possibly be. We, we referred to them as eye-shaped mounts, which is sort of what it says on the tin, really. But uh, they're one of the first things that's been researched in the, the current research programme. They're um, shaped like a pointed oval, and they have a tessellating frame of cloisonné garnets. Then there's a sort of trough, and then there's a middle bit, still shaped like a pointed oval, which is backed by cross-hatched foil. So whatever went into the middle bit must have been translucent, otherwise it wouldn't have bothered backing it with the foil. And our researcher reckons that that would have held blue glass. And then round that, round the blue glass, there would have been a ring of white bone. And so they would have looked like eyes. And he reckons that they were part of the binding of a book. Well, there's, there's only one sort of book you get in those days. It's going to be a gospel or, or possibly a Bible. And you can imagine going into a chapel 
they're very, very dark, they haven't got any windows, they might be a candle or two guttering on the altar, and you might have a cross like the, the crumpled cross that is in the board, the, the processional cross, so that might have been glittering on the altar as well. And then next to it would have been these eyes shining out from the binding of the book in a sort of warning for you not to touch. And there's also a pair of mounts shaped like cat's ears, and I would like to think they are cat's ears and that they possibly went on the same book as well. There are no um, extant Anglo-Saxon bindings apart from St Cuthbert's Little Prayer Book, which is a very plain little leather-bound book. So we, we have nothing to compare it with, and we don't really know. But there are some matching garnet borders that obviously went on something with right angles, and it would be very nice to think they were a book, really. Now, you mentioned St Cuthbert, and there's a connection between the, well, potential connection between the cross and St. Cuthbert, is that right? Well, there might be. As I said before, if this turns out to be mercy and battle loot, the people it's most likely looted off are Northumbrians, and St. Cuthbert was a, mercy, was a Northumbrian. We have a beautiful little pectoral cross with a great big wine-gummy garment in the middle and decorated all over with filigree. And it's very, very similar to a cross that was found in the coffin of St. Cuthbert. And, in fact, um, next year it'll be compared with St. Cuthbert's cross in an exhibition to do with Lindisfarne and the Anglo-Saxon Christians at Durham. And it'll be fascinating to see how far the comparison can be taken. Now, with regard to that cross, and actually, there are two crosses, right? There's the one well, that's there's, been folded there's entirely. three crosses, actually. Oh, there's the band. That well, there's also a tiny little golden garnet cross, which is absolutely exquisite. And at first, we didn't know we had it. Because the excavation was, was done very, very quickly, a lot of the material was buried in clumps of earth and we just didn't know it was there until they started poking away the, cl- the clumps of earth and I was there when, at Birmingham when they were cleaning this little cross it was the most beautiful and exquisite thing and what excited them was not the gold work and not the garnet work but the fact there was green gunge under one of the garnet, around one of the garnets and this green gunge could be analysed and might give us some sort of hint as to you know, the mechanism by which they created these works so this little tiny cross, has it been bent and mangled the way the other crosses? Yeah, yes, it has. So we have three crosses, and they've all been bent and mangled. Yes, well, everything's been bent and mangled, so it's not necessarily vindictive against Christians. The, the crumpled cross, which has been replicas have been made of it, one for us, one for Birmingham, one for the Pope, for his cross collection, and that's been crumpled up quite substantially, partly... I think, so it would take up less room in their loot bag. But also, quite a lot of the garnets that were mounted in it have survived. So if, if the arms of the cross were wrapped around to keep the garnets in place, you know, these people knew what they were doing. They'd done it before, they're expert looters, and so they're trying to preserve as much of the, the treasure as they can. So it's not necessarily done with anti-Christian malice. Now, during this period in history, there were two sects of Christianity in Britain, right? There was Celtic Christianity and Anglo-Saxon Christianity, and there was still paganism going on as well, right? Because yes. Mercia was the last to really... It was, and it's not... Although the um, St. Chad died in 672, by which time Mercia was nominally Christian, but it's not like somebody flicks a switch and all of a sudden everybody's Christian. You know, if the old gods have been good to you, you, you stick with them, really. And also, I mean, you, you perhaps know the story of St. Augustine, who, who goes and converts one of the... East Anglian kings, and he goes back a couple of years later and says, how are you getting on with the Christian God? Oh, great, great, the Christian God's been really good to us. And, uh, and did he set up an altar like I told you? Yes, yes, we've got an altar. Can I see it? Yes, it's in here with all the others. And he's got you know, a chapel with altars to all sorts of gods. So the, the Saxons didn't always 
grasp that the point of Christianity might be its exclusivity. But yes, there were two different sects of Christianity. There was the Roman sect that had come across with St Augustine, and there was the Hiberno-Northumbrian, which is what people like Cuthbert and Chad tended to adhere to. You tended to, to study in Ireland for a bit and then be trained in Lindisfarne, and then you were sort of sent off as a missionary elsewhere, and that was sorted out by the Synod of Whitby. And they decided to go with the Roman style, which was... The, 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 the Hiberno-Northumbrian was much more austere, but it was mainly to do with the date of Easter and how big your tonsure was and that sort of thing. But you, you can tell by place names in Mercia that the worship of the old gods continued. There's Thor's Cave up in the, the Peak District. There's Wensfield and Wensbury, which is Wodensfield and Woden's Town. And you, know, you don't just discard the old gods because the king says so. Now, where this hoard has been found is right along Watling Street, correct? Yeah. Well, just a little bit off of it. Yes. And that would have still been used by the Anglo-Saxons, I think right? so. The, the, um, the Anglo-Saxons are famously not keen to reuse Roman buildings. They don't seem to like stone buildings at all. And even in London, which was a, you know, an established Roman city, the Anglo-Saxons built London, which next to it, which is Westminster, and that, that was mainly wood. But it does seem willfully perverse not to use one of the few roads in the country, especially if it's going where you want it to go. You might as well go on it. And there's a settlement that these days is called Wall, which was quite a substantial Roman town on Watling Street. And archaeologists are beginning to suspect that the Saxons may have occupied Wall. It's just this side of Lichfield. And if you're sort of hunkering down for the winter and you need somewhere defensible to to stay, you you might as well use a place with defensible houses and things. So there might have been an Anglo-Saxon settlement somewhere in this region then? We know that Lichfield was already an Anglo-Saxon settlement. Tamworth was already an Anglo-Saxon settlement. And there are lots of little ones going along. But they're all fairly small. The, the, The population is still fairly sparse in that time. But Watling Street is your main road from London to Holyhead. Right especially as the Mercians were allies of the, the Welsh. But both of them would fight against the Northumbrians together, so there might have been comings and goings between Mercia and, uh, and, and Wales, and then you'd be, you'd be silly, really, if you weren't using Watling Street. One of the things that struck me while we were walking around the Horde is what's described as the mystery object. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I can tell you a very tiny little bit about it, and it wouldn't be a mystery if I could tell you a lot about it, but um, the most striking thing about it is the top of it, which is a stud made of millefiori glass. It was the first thing I noticed when I was looking at the Horde after it had just been excavated. And it, at first it looks black and white, but if you if you look at it, it's checkers of, of brown, blue and white glass. And as far as we know, Mercy and Anglo-Saxons didn't have the skills to produce that sort of thing at all. It's more likely to be recycled Roman glass. We know that the Romans used checkered millefiori studs on things like hanging bowls, and it might be something that's been recycled from that. It's, it's, it's surrounded a gold and garnet cloisonne ring, and, and the Saxons will have made that. And at first we thought that was just a stud that perhaps fastened, I don't know, scabbards to, to belts or what have you. And then the conservationists at Birmingham realised that they found a shadow on it that showed that it fitted to a cylinder, a golden cylinder with a row of garments down it. And that, in turn, fitted to a golden garnet plaque that has got a motif of intertwined hands all around it. And now we can't imagine what it was. We could make a reasonable stab at what the three separate pieces were, but now that we know that they fit together, it's absolutely baffling. Nothing like it has ever been found. Some people have suggested that it's a shield boss, but you wouldn't have a shield boss made of glass, really. Some people have suggested that it's the lid of something, perhaps a ciborium for Christian communion wafers or maybe from a drinking horn, but there's no underneath bit that would fit into into a container. And the most sensible suggestion I've heard is that it's one end of a scroll 
but then you'd expect there to be two of it. So, you know, all suggestions gratefully received, really. We've, we've no idea at all what it is. And that isn't the only mystery object you've got. What about the snakes? Well, the snakes, there are five or six gold snakes, and they're all slightly different colours of gold, so presumably they weren't all made at the same time. We don't know what they are because nothing has ever been found that can be compared with them. There's you know, no other gold snakes are around. And it might have been that they went on a helmet or a shield and they show that you're one of the people of the snakes, something like that, because for the Saxons, you know, they're not necessarily sinister or creepy. And some of them have got little vestigial legs that make them look a little bit more like dragons and some of them have got heads and some of them, the snakes, the heads have broken off. But you can tell by the way that they're curved... They didn't necessarily fit on something flat. They're curved in several dimensions, and that's not from damage either by the plough or being levered off. They're curved like that to make them look like snakes. As with quite a lot of the hoard, nothing like that has been found before, and we have nothing to compare it with. So it's, it's very difficult to say what it might be. One of the things I found interesting about the hoard is not just what we found that's new, But there are things that we expect to see in finds like this that either there's only a few of them or none. For example, dress fittings are not uncommon in digs, and they're completely missing. And then there are, what, two buckles? Yes, uh, they could be off a child's shoe, really. They're they're beautiful and exquisite, and they're like modern buckles, except that they're made of solid gold. And um, we think they perhaps have buckled up the strap that your sword hung from, or they might have been part of your horse's harnessing, or they might, I don't know, they might have held your socks up for all all we know. We've absolutely no idea what they're for at all. You say about personal jewellery, that there is no no personal jewellery at all in the hoard, but uh, we have in our own collections a little piece that was found about half a mile from where the sword was found, and it's from about the same time as the hoard, and it's the same materials. It's a little square pendant set with a garnet in the middle, and it's from a woman's necklace. So it, it shows that there is other Saxon activity in that area around the time that the hoard was buried, and it's, if you like, a sort of a feminine take on what the hoard could have looked like if some of it had been made for ladies. Now, one of the, the things that struck me when I was first reading about the hoard is the fact that everything that was found is Anglo-Saxon. Absolutely everything was found. There isn't any Roman pottery. There isn't anything from the early medieval, the late medieval. It's just entirely from that, that that's small period of time. That's strictly true. Really? Well, there is one piece that's Victorian, actually. It's a, it's a little mourning brooch with a black stone with white veins through it and a, it's in a silver setting, probably. It might be pewter. It was found among the hoard, but it, obviously it's not part of it because it's far, far too late. And you, you can imagine a farmer's wife dropping it in the midden and then the muck from the midden being spread on the field. And that's probably how it got into it. And then the plough muddled them up together. But yes, um, the rest of it is, is from pretty much 200 years of Anglo-Saxon culture. Right. Now, how close was this find to Watling Street? About how many uh, metres? About, about 100 yards, I believe. It was, it was very close indeed. Um, yes, it, it, it's, it's overlooking Watling Street. It's, it's on the brow of a hill. And it seems to me that if you're heading westward along Watling Street and you're being pursued by your enemies and you realise they're catching up, it's quite reasonable to nip over into the nearest field and bury it because it wasn't buried very deeply at all. None of it was below about two feet. And it seems to have been buried in a, in a hurry. And I think the fact that it overlooks Watling Street is, is, um, you know, is why it's there because the, the, its, its owners were travelling along Watling Street. I know the landowner reported that there was a mound and that he flattened it. Uh, has there been any study regarding 
that mound and whether or not the hoard could have been prior to the plowing placed under that mound? Well, um, certainly the fact that it was buried so shallowly suggests that some, you know, something's happened to the ground. The story of there being a burial mound is, is quite widespread. I've heard several people, you know, old people from Hammerwich. There was a, a lady who came into the exhibition whose father had owned that field many, many years ago, and he would never plough it because there was a burial mound there. He would only plant cabbages on it, which apparently you don't need to plough for. But certainly there's no trace of a burial mound there now. The archaeologists went over the field with um, equipment that you look for landmines with and also with geophysical things, um, and they didn't find anything at all except some post holes, which could be modern. They didn't find any sort of an Anglo-Saxon landmark. And it would have been a fairly unusual burial if, if it was for a burial mound, right? I mean, usually you see between one and three swords tops for Anglo-Saxon burial, not 90 pommels. Well, no, that, that, that's why I feel it's, it's got to be a Lord's Hoard originally. Some of my colleagues think it might have been a sacrificial burial, but it would have been a heck of a sacrifice, you know, because there's so much of it, really. Now, what about the piece that's referred to as the eagle and the fish? The eagle and the fish, um, we say it's a mount, which means we think it was stuck to something. We don't know what. But our researcher reckons it's two eagles holding a fish between them. It looks like two eagles or two ospreys fighting over a fish. But our researcher reckons that it's the Anglo-Saxons' attempt at showing the image in three dimensions. So you get one side of the eagle and then you get the fish. And then you get the other side of the eagle. And he reckons that it might have been the mount or the decoration on a saddle. And if it turns out to be true, that's going to knock everything we think we know about Anglo-Saxon warfare into a cocked hat. Because it's generally accepted that the Anglo-Saxons did not have cavalry, mainly on the evidence of the Battle of Hastings, I think. With the, the shield wall. Yes. Yeah, so and, and certainly the shield wall was, you know, we know that was a major part of Anglo-Saxon warfare. And you can't really do a shield wall if you're on a horse. But one of the panels of the helmet that's been found, the Staffordshire Horde, and in fact one of the panels on the Sutton Hoo helmet, they both show quite clearly an armed warrior with a spear riding down and killing foot warriors. And he's on a horse, so cavalry may not have been a standard part of the Anglo-Saxon style of warfare, but it's, it certainly did happen. I've also heard it said that they couldn't have cavalry because Anglo-Saxon horses were only very tiny, and if you sat on one, your feet would drag along the ground. But um, I think that's probably not true, really. But they, they'd have been sort of small and sturdy like a pony, not like a, a, a modern thoroughbred. Now, what sort of symbolism might this show when, when you have the eagle and the fish? Well, it might be a sort of a hybrid symbolism, because the eagle is a fairly standard Anglo-Saxon symbolism for sovereignty. But on things like the Litchfield Gospels, which they're, they're kept in Litchfield Cathedral now, they came from Wales, and before they went to Wales, we don't know where they were, the people at Litchfield would very much like us to think that they were made for St Chad at Litchfield. I think probably not, but who knows? We don't know where they were from, but they're Anglo-Saxon, basically. Mm-hmm. In illuminated manuscripts like that, you know that each of the gospel makers has an animal, and the, the, the animal of St John is an eagle. And quite often St John's eagle is shown grasping a fish because you know, they're fishes of men and all that sort of thing, and, and the fish is a symbol of Christ. So although this may not in, in itself be a Christian symbol, the, the, the pagan Saxons are quite capable of taking Christian symbols and, and converting them, if you like, to their own use. So the style of fish and the style of eagle are quite similar to some of those in the, in the illuminated manuscripts. So it's possible that we could have a, an Anglo-Saxon nobleman, because you'd have to be a nobleman to be a cavalry. Well, you'd have to be a nobleman yeah. to have gold. To for, yeah. yes. Up there... With, with possibly a helmet, with possibly a sword, and then have that. 
that's radically different from any image that we have yes. of, uh, of the, the Anglo-Saxon warriors. The more we find out, the less we know, really. One of the objects that you pointed out to me when we were downstairs appeared to be a little bit like a swastika. It was rather unusual, at least for my eyes, to see that in a Anglo-Saxon horde. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it's a, it is a swastika. It's a sort of rounded swastika made of four eagles' heads all pointing in the same direction. And for us, a swastika has got fairly sinister connotations. But for the Saxons, it's quite a... It's almost like a good luck charm. It's associated particularly with the worship of Thor, and some people think it symbolises fire. That particular piece, again, we don't really know what it's for. It might have gone on a shield, something like that, but the little gold pins that held it in place have survived. But it does show us that we have a mix of Christian symbology as well as pagan symbology in the same horde then. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, uh, it may have been the same people, it may not have been. It may represent different kingdoms or tribes, if you like, that were being defeated in battle and having their possessions looted off them. Well, this is a beautiful collection of objects. How best can people view the objects if they're in England and if they're out of the country... Where can they go to get more information about that? Well, there's a very good website, um, staffordhoard.co.uk. If the, the, there's, there should always be some on display here at the Potteries Museum and in at the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. But do check before you go up if you want to see something particular just to see where it is. At the moment, there's some on display at Lichfield Cathedral and some on display at Tamworth Castle. Other bits and pieces do go out on loan from time to time. There's a lot being researched either x-rayed in Lincoln or the helmet parts are being analysed at the British Museum. So it sort of finds its way about all over the place. So if there's a particular piece that you want to see, do ring and check where it is before you come from a different country to see it. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. And if anyone wants to see the Staffordshire Horde, it's right now at the Potteries Museum. It'll be here until... Until beginning of September. Okay, excellent. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you'd like to find out more about the Horde or you'd like to learn more about the Potteries Museum in Stoke-on-Trent or the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery in Birmingham, you can do so via the links at my website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And as always, you can head over to the forums and join the conversation there. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>